On today's episode, I'm talking all about coughing in older dogs. I'm answering a question about is there a link between heart failure and seizures? Next, is it okay to spay an older dog? Then how many grapes are poisonous for a dog and what flea treatment should you use if your vet doesn't stock the one that you would prefer? But first, let's cue the intro. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast, the show that answers all of your dog and cat health questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian, Dr. Alex Avery. Hi, and welcome to episode number 11 of the Dr. Alex Answers Show. I'm Dr. Alex, the veterinarian behind rpetshealth.com, and my aim is to give you the information that you need to help you look after your pet to the best of your ability. Now, if we're meeting for the first time and you enjoy the show, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. I've got loads more valuable episodes lined up that you definitely won't want to miss. Now, you can also get your question answered just by heading over to dralexanswers.com. You know, I love receiving all of your questions and I wouldn't be able to do the show without them. So, you know, don't be shy and ask me any question you have. It could be about um, your pet who is ill. It could be about how to look after them um, and keep them healthy in the first place. Or just a question about kind of why they're doing a certain certain thing or a certain behavior. So be sure to head over to dralexanswers.com um, to submit your question today. But before we get going on um, on today's show, I just wanted to read out this review from 100 Hot, um, who writes, finally, a great resource for pet owners, or should I say pet friends or pet relatives, as I see them as true family members. Dr. Alex shows that he really knows about pet health, and he's here to help all of us who truly care and worry about our furry friend's health and well-being definitely a must listen podcast so thanks for that really kind review yep definitely um you know pets are part of the family they're not just um you know kind of animals who kind of coexist with us and you know it's really important that we you know kind of show them the love and respect and health care that that they deserve for everything that they bring into our lives as well so yeah thanks for those kind words and i'd love it if also if you've got a couple of minutes um if you just head over to rpetshealth.com slash review um and leave me your honest thoughts and opinions on the show you know reviews especially on itunes they help more than you can imagine with other people finding this podcast and i'd appreciate so much if you could spend just a minute or two leaving a review over there Right, so let's jump into the first question. And this one was sent in by Paul, um, who says that he's attached a video of a friend's dog. It's got this weird bark, and he's confused by multiple diagnosis from their vet. Any idea what it is? So I'll just play um, a little clip from that, um, an audio clip from that video now, so you can kind of hear what's going on. <coughs> Okay, so what did you think that sounds like? Well, to me, it sounds very much like a cough. Um, you know, and as far as the cough goes, it really, it could be anything. There's no way to to specifically give a diagnosis based on what a cough sounds like. But it really looks like um, a cough rather than a bark. And, and that's because um, the dog actually does swallow after kind of making this noise which likely indicates that he's coughing up mucus which is then being swallowed um, and this actually just highlights the importance of a video so always take one of your pet doing your the thing that you're concerned about because when we describe something it's actually very very difficult to get a true picture of that and unfortunately a lot of the time our dogs and our cats they don't perform whatever it is they're doing at home at the veterinary clinic so having a video makes a really big difference and in this case it you know it could mean the difference between actually investigating a 
a cough or investigating something completely different which isn't what's going on so video is really important and I think this highlights that really nicely now it could be an infectious problem you know absolutely kind of kennel cough a viral disease um, something like that even a, a, a kind of start of a pneumonia um, you know depending on how well the dog is but with an old dog I'd also be wondering about chronic bronchitis um, you know as well with the possibility of a collapsing trachea um, although you know this latter part is not quite as common as just a chronic bronchitis so if he's breathing um, is noisy at other times as well and his bark is actually kind of a little bit weird or it sounds a bit strange then laryngeal paralysis is a possibility as well now that's normally kind of a bigger dog um, but yeah absolutely it could be it could be the case in any in in the small breed dog as well heart failure is also a possibility you would expect an abnormality to be heard with a stethoscope so that's something that should be picked up by an in an examination with a veterinarian uh, at, but what happens here if the heart's failing then it can fill up with fluid the lungs can effectively develop a little bit of fluid which can cause coughing but more likely you get an enlargement of some of the chambers of the heart and that compress on some of the small airways which triggers this coughing so you know with heart failure in small dogs we will also often get a cough and it can be very tricky sometimes to determine whether the heart is causing a problem or there is a problem with the lungs because a murmur on the heart being heard on examination doesn't always necessarily mean that there's heart failure either so that kind of needs to trigger some more investigations so really you can see a lot depends on the history you know what else is going on at home and examination findings so what can we hear when we're listening to the heart and to the lungs and to the throat and the larynx the voice box with a stethoscope um, and other kind of body changes as well so temperature checking the abdomen the the gum color and how quickly um kind of that's changing when you can when you put pressure on the gum so there's a lot to 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 kind of consider here and really an examination is is key but an examination isn't the be all and end all and it can't often give us a definitive diagnosis so diagnostically really if things don't seem to be progressing with whatever treatments been happening um, been been trialed and sometimes we will just trial a treatment see what happens see if it works and then make a presumptive diagnosis but there are other tests that can be done so we can do blood tests and we can actually do a specific blood test to look at um look for markers of heart damage and heart stress which is something called a, bro, a pro bnp test um, we can also anesthetize to actually look at the larynx to look at the voice box to see if there is any sign of paralysis um, we can also take x-rays and that can look at signs of heart failure um, for cancer which is a possibility for lung disease as well um, and then finally we can also take some flushing samples from the lungs so something called a bal or a bronchoalveolar lavage and effectively what happens here is one while the patient is anaesthetized to have the x-rays um, and to have the other ch tests done is they can have um, either a, a little endoscope so we camera kind of pass down into the lungs and a sample retrieved that way or we can pass a little catheter um, down the tube that's delivering the anesthetic gas add some water suck that back up and send that off to the lab which can be really useful tests to look for infections and sign of signs of chronic bronchitis so those are my thoughts about this case but I think it highlights a couple of really interesting and important points and that is that a video really does make an awful lot of difference when it comes to trying to describe and trying to 
you know find out what's going on at home because otherwise we can be led astray and maybe um, kind of have tests done that are completely unnecessary or miss things that are otherwise important um, and it also um, highlights the importance of a, a, an examination and then working through a process so we can't always get an absolute answer um, and if something isn't working if you're trying a specific treatment or management strategy and it doesn't seem to be making any difference then keeping in touch with your vet um, and letting them know so that plans can be adjusted more diagnostics can be taken and the case can be worked up um, more fully so kind of those are my thoughts on this wee dog that's that's coughing like it is you're listening to the dr alex answers show so question number two is from Court Mickey, who writes um, that her female chihuahua is eight and a half years old and not spayed. So she's never tried to run away. Um, she's a house dog. But for health reasons, um, Court Mickey is considering getting her spayed and wondering if it's worth to do it, if it's worth doing it at this age, at eight and a half years of age. Or is she, you know, just too old to spay? Is there no point? So really, if we're thinking of um, spaying, there are three big reasons and benefits for spaying a dog. Um, the first of those is to to prevent pregnancy. Um, the second is to prevent a condition called pyometra, which is a, an infection of the uterus, where the uterus effectively becomes a big balloon full of pus. So it's really horrible. It's potentially life-threatening, and I'll get onto that in just a minute. And we also want to reduce the risk of mammary tumours. So that's the other big benefit of spaying. Now, at eight and a half years old, we're less likely to get pregnant certainly older dogs can still get pregnant she's also a house dog so she's probably unlikely coming into contact with entire male dogs um you know so that's maybe less of a risk and a less of a consideration with this particular chihuahua um there's also less benefit for a reduction in mammary tumours in older dogs. So we tend to think that if we're spaying before that first season, we get about a 99.5% reduction in the risk of mammary tumours. If we're spaying before the second season, it's about a 95% reduction. And before the third season, about a 75% reduction. Now, after that, there doesn't seem to be such a big difference. Though having said that, there does seem to be an increased survival if um, an animal has been spayed within two years of mammary masses developing. So mammary masses are, are, are really pretty common in entire animals uh, and about 50% of those that do occur are nasty malignant tumours. So that means they can spread to other parts of the body um, and they can ultimately be fatal. Benign tumours can grow very big and can cause severe problems as well. Um, so yeah, the two-year survival of kind of from mammary cancer is better if a dog has been spayed within the last two years so you know there's still going to be a slight benefit i think from that point of view now moving on to pyometra so this infection of the uterus really one in four female dogs will develop pyometra by the time they get to 10 years of age if they remain entire now this condition it does have a, about a 95 percent survival rate if it's treated appropriately um, but this does require kind of expensive emergency surgery in the majority of cases now some can be managed medically um, but these are really the minority of cases um, where this is preferable emergency surgery is generally the gives us the best outcome and is the preferred treatment um, and either way both are still um, kind of severe interventions and they're expensive treatments um, that you know carry some risk as well so those are really the benefits of spaying and I think that kind of highlights the fact that in an older dog there still is going to be a benefit to getting them spayed at this age and even even later you know pyometra is that common um, and it's much better to have an elective surgery when a pet is otherwise healthy than to wait until they're they're really sick there's also going to be a big cost difference there as well which is you know maybe something to consider depending on your kind of financial circumstances now having said all that there's no such thing as a no risk 
procedure or no risk surgery procedure so um the risks of spaying are that yeah an anesthetic and a surgical procedure does carry some risk that is going to that risk is going to depend to a certain extent on the health of the individual we can do pre-anesthetic blood testing to check that the liver liver kidneys um and rest of the body function seems to be working well we can give eye fluid iv fluids so intravenous fluids during the operation and, and i think that's not an option that's really a necessity for an older dog like this um and really unless there's specific individual concerns because of other diseases being present or maybe blood test results showing that there may be something else going on the the risk of surgery really is very low um and that's in a young dog and in an older dog now there are also potentially some side effects to being spayed um there are some potential risks in certain breeds if spayed before 12 months of age so that's cruciate disease um bone cancer and numerous other ones there doesn't seem to be any risks or there's no known risks in spaying a uh spaying a female dog older than kind of older than that in an older so, so certainly an older dog i don't think we need to be worrying about these things um and i've actually got a separate um piece over on rpetshealth.com that really is a comprehensive review about the risks and benefits of spaying a female dog in general so that's more targeted at kind of younger dogs so whether we should be spaying at six months at 12 months or maybe not considering spaying at all or until they're an awful lot older so definitely go and check that out to rpetshealth.com and i'll leave a link in the show notes as well but you know i guess the summary is is that yes i think it's definitely still worthwhile to get an older dog spayed uh, we're going to potentially avoid some really emergency conditions and i think a lot of the potential um, side effects of being spayed are not going to be a risk in an older dog compared to getting a younger dog spayed Okay, so before we jump into the next question, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by my free ebook, which explores the risks and benefits of raw diets compared to commercial kibble diets. So if you've ever wondered what the best thing to feed your pet is, then you really need to check this in-depth resource out by heading over to dralexanswers.com and signing up for access to the Knowledge Vault, which also includes a lot of other downloads that you're sure to find useful for looking after your dog or your cat. So head over to dralexanswers.com and sign up for the Knowledge Vault today. Right, so moving on to my next question, and that's from Lasanthi, who's been watching my videos over on YouTube on dog seizures and found them very helpful, um, and writes that... Um, Lysanthi's dog's been having seizures kind of almost daily. Um, she's a mixed breed dog who's between 14 and 16 years of age and otherwise very active and happy kind of in between these seizure episodes. Blood tests and urine tests don't show anything, but she does have a very bad heart. It's enlarged. It's got an irregular pulse. Um, so those are some of the things that we can see in the coughing dog that kind of I've discussed in the, that previous question um, and is actually on some treatment for heart failure. So it's possible that she's been having these episodes occasionally for two years, but it was misdiagnosed as her losing consciousness due to heart disease um you know if so has this increased severity um where it's easier to identify as seizures um actually an indication that the heart disease is causing the seizures or is this a new problem um, and there has been collapsing episodes before so um I'll start off by saying that seizure activity it typically involves a loss of consciousness along with what we call tonic-clonic muscle contraction. So that's where we have the typical um, seizure activity where if you like if their their legs, um, their muscles, they contract um, and then they re- kind of relax um, or they kind of contract alter- alternatively. So the leg is kind of um, extending and then contracting, extending and contracting and we get the tremors and the seizure activity that we would typically associate with, with, um, yeah, with having fits. Now, collapse due to heart failure 
can take place with or without loss of consciousness. So if we're not having loss of consciousness, then we're going to know that that's a collapsing episode and that's not a seizure activity. If we do get um, loss of consciousness, though, we don't tend to get those. Well, we not we don't tend to. We don't get that muscle uh, muscle activity that we do with seizures. So we often get a weakness first. They'll get wobbly on their legs and then fall to the ground. Now, if they do lose consciousness, then like I say, they don't contract and relax their muscles or they don't become rigid like a typical seizure. So, you know, there is a difference between collapsing and having seizures. It's important that we appreciate that difference. Um, And again, that kind of goes back to taking a little video of an episode while your pet is having it so that we can be certain that we're dealing with the right thing. Because if we're having, if we're actually collapsing and not having seizures, then there's a whole load of things we potentially don't need to do, especially in a dog that has already been diagnosed with heart disease. We've kind of got our diagnosis already, whereas seizures are caused by different things. So we're not going to get seizure activity due to heart disease in this dog. So causes of seizures can really be broken down into a number of different kind of groups, if you like. So toxins is one. So that's something that a dog has eaten so a poison um, slug bait um, mycotoxin so that's from kind of moldy food Um, you know there's a whole range of different things that can cause seizures Um, infections so things like meningitis or other other infections can cause seizures we can get organ disease or hormonal abnormalities that causes changes in the blood that then can trigger seizures we can get central lesions so that's lesions within the brain that um, can cause seizures so that can be um, kind of brain masses, brain tumours and that kind of thing. Um, and we can also get epilepsy. So depending on the the kind of the age of the dog, the, the nature of the seizures and the clinical exam, uh, in between seizures depends on what's going to be more likely. Now, epilepsy isn't going to be likely in this case because that's a disease of young dogs. Typically starts between about one to five years of age. There's a little bit of variation there, but it's a disease that starts in early age. Um, poisons is always a always a potential but that's really going to most likely cause one-off seizures infections you know that can happen at any age there are some that are more likely to uh, affect different aged dogs um organ disease definitely something that older dogs can happen can 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 be affected with but you would tend to get changes in between seizures so you might see um, vomiting diarrhea changes in um, drinking and urination that kind of thing and then central lesions so like brain tumors and the like again we would often see um, other neurological changes in between kind of that seizure activity but that can be sometimes very difficult to appreciate so really those are the causes of seizures and i wouldn't expect the heart failure to to be related but taking a video is going to be a good idea so that you can kind of really confirm that it is seizure activity and not just a collapse um, with loss of consciousness get your question answered at dralexanswers.com Okay, so my next question was sent in by JP, who writes, Hello, can you help? My dog ate yogurt-covered raisins, about 50 of them, and she weighs 80 pounds. I then had another question that says, My seven-month-old puppy ate two grapes. She's approximately 20 pounds. Will she be okay? Well, you know, both of these owners are right in thinking that raisins and grapes can be very poisonous um, to dogs. Now, we don't know exactly what it is that causes the poisoning, but what happens is the, the whatever it is in the raisins and grapes results in kidney damage and kidney failure, which ultimately can lead to death and can be quite efficient at killing a dog. Now, different individuals have different susceptibilities, and this is where the challenge comes in with knowing kind of how many is, is dangerous for an individual dog and what to do about it if they do get into uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of grapes or a box of raisins or 
baking or cakes or anything like that that have got raisins in it. So over Easter, you know, we think of hot cross buns, you know, have potentially got lots of raisins and can be very dangerous. So because of this, it's always best to err on the side of caution, because if we wait too long, it may be actually too late to successfully treat them and to help their kidneys once we're seeing signs of illness. So kidneys are very sensitive to different to, to different toxins and they don't regenerate. So if we're getting an awful lot of damage, then, you know, may, potentially things will be too late and no amount of treatment will be able to, to save them and to kind of reverse some of the damage that's been done. Now, I've actually um, just produced a calculator so that you can see the potential toxic dose for your dogs. So for an 80-pound dog, we're talking about 84 grapes is the dangerous dose so getting into 50 you know is potentially you know potentially safe and i say potentially because there's also been cases where dogs have um, had kidney damage occur at lower than the supposed toxic dose so like i say i think it's always best to err on the side of caution and in this case i would definitely recommend going and seeing your vet um, having them checked over you know potentially going on iv fluids and having some blood tests done to check that the kidneys are working fine because really we don't want to mess around with this if kidney da- like i say if kidney damage has happened and we're only picking that up two three four days later because a dog is becoming really unwell then the likelihood is is that it's going to be too late to do anything really significant about that the flip side is is that a lot of dogs will be able to eat raisins and grapes without having any problems at all but there's just no way of knowing we don't have a test that we can look at that says which dog is going to be sensitive and which isn't you know that would be a fantastic thing to have but we just don't have that certainly at present you know that may be something that comes around in the future so yeah if you're ever concerned go and check out that calculator Um, I'll leave the links in the description but that's also available in my resource center um, if you sign up for the knowledge fault Um, so yeah I'll leave the link in the show notes for that calculator. And now is a good time just to remind you that the information that I give in these podcasts is not a substitute for a consultation and examination with your pet's veterinarian, and it shouldn't be taken as specific individual advice for any individual pet. If your pet is unwell, if they're injured, if they're suffering from any kind of problem, or if you're worried about anything, then talking to your vet is always going to be the best course of action. And then my final question is from Bridget, who would like to know which flea treatment to use for her dogs or for her cats, Um, because a problem here is that the vets don't always stock the ones that you want to use but promote ones that they get to discount on like advocates so what are your thoughts on this subject well i'll start off by saying what we want our ideal flea treatment to do we want it to kill fleas we want it persist to persist for a known period of time so to keep working as well as it did on day one for a known period of time we want it to be non-toxic i'm easy to administer we also want any flea treatment to cover any other parasites that may be present and may be a risk to your um, dog or your cat and that's really going to depend on the geographical area um, that you live in so where you live in the world because there's going to be different parasite problems Um, and we also want to ideally to help reduce the environmental flea population so that's reducing the eggs and larvae um, developing then into adults so if we think about older products kind of ones that have been around for a long 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 period of time um, and a lot of kind of pet shop and supermarket products are going to include these not all of them by any stretch but some of them um, you know they either don't persist for the whole month or whatever the duration is said to be so they might kill the fleas on day one kind of when they're applied and maybe have an action for the next few days but actually they're not going to keep killing those fleas for that whole month they might have a low safety index as well overdosing is easy and actually in some cases the the normal dose that we give is really verging on the toxic dose and the interval that's given so that month interval is because if we apply any more frequently to to do a better job we're actually going to really be getting into toxic levels um some 
will have no action on on the environment um so they won't help prevent the eggs and larvae from developing and some are just really not very good at killing fleas um, maybe they were at one point but their fleas are actually developing resistant to that to, resistance to that now if we move on to side effects and kind of safety now all products which work will have a risk of side effects so there's no getting away from that you know those risks are really really low and i can't stress that enough and i've actually spoken before about um brevecto nexgard and simparica um safety because there's was an fda kind of reminder about the potential for neurological signs um so check that out in the previous episode um, and also i've spoken about revolution and allergic reactions to topical products as well so you know there are potential side effects and then another side effect to, to know about is that really we should only apply cat products to cats so never apply a dog product to your cat unless you've been specifically advised that that's okay by your vet because some dog products are really very dangerous if given to cats now there are so many products out there that do a very good job. I'm not going to give particular names because the names do change depending on which region you're in. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different ones that cover a whole range of different um, parasites that, again, you know, change depending on where you are in the world. Now, like I said, we really want to make a decision based on local parasite risk and how well each product meets the requirements of the ideal flea treatment that I've just discussed. We also want to try and avoid doubling up of products with the same action. So, you know, it might be that you're worming your pet with a certain thing and you only need to treat fleas. So you then don't need a flea product that also does worms if you're giving a separate tablet. Um, and, you know, in part, kind of the decision to, to stock different products by a vet is going to be based on, you know, what's safe, what meets all those ideal requirements, what is appropriate for the local parasite risk. But, you know, it's also a business decision as well, because ultimately, um, that surgeries need to make money to stay open you know and so that's that's a reality now if you're part of a big group of practices or a, a kind of a corporate group you might be instructed to prefer preferentially stock um certain products if your um, veterinarian is an independent veterinarian they might be part of a buying group just to try and help reduce prices to to remain competitive with uh their neighboring practices um and they may get preferential terms on specific products uh, now the decision that's made with which one to buy is not going to be compromised by which product works you know well you're not going to get a product that doesn't work being stocked by your vet because ultimately that's going to really um, undermine their credibility and they're going to lose clients as a result of that you know we're not in the business of selling things that don't work and are no benefit or are really dangerous um, but you know there is also a business risk there there's just no way that a, a vet can stock everything on the shelf so you know the other thing to say is if you did have a specific product that you really wanted to try then the vast majority of vets are going to be able to order something in for you specifically that's generally not a problem you know it might take a day or two or you know even a week to get that product in for you but when we're you know when you're getting a box of four or a box of three treatments that's going to last a month or um, a month for each treatment you know it's not something that needs to be ordered in as an emergency you just need to you know ring them up a couple of weeks before you know they you, you need to have a new st uh, new supply and get that ordered in for you so you know that's really my thoughts around that there are a lot of products out there like i say um, and which one is going to be most appropriate for you depends on your pet depends on their lifestyle and depends where you live in the world so really just have a chat with your vet and also kind of ask them to explain why they're recommending a certain product um you know it may be that actually that has additional benefits to the product that you're thinking of so you know have that conversation as well and it's not just your vet that you can speak to you can speak to the nursing team or the reception team as well because they often have very good training about parasite risks and which products work and which products are recommended 
And that's it for this episode of the podcast. Um, I hope you found that useful. I hope you found it interesting. And um, yeah, make sure that you're subscribed if you, you know, if you did. And if you do have a couple of spare minutes, I'd love it if you could leave me a review over on iTunes or over at rpetshealth.com slash review just to help more people discover this podcast and allow me to help more pets, which is really what this is all about. Remember too to head over to dralexansis.com where you'll find the links and downloads mentioned in today's show. And until next time, take care. You've been listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the show where you ask the questions and Dr. Alex answers.